This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. Well, at episode 50, I said, no time for reflection right now, maybe later. Well, here we are, slowly and then suddenly at 100. In the podcasting universe, this is one I would consider a legitimate milestone, especially when considering that an overwhelming majority of podcasts don't make it past 10 episodes. There is a difference between what this show has become and what I imagined it would be when I launched in June of 2020 during the pandemic, so I wanted to take some time to reflect on that. I created this podcast because it's something that I would have wanted when I was becoming an architect, especially as someone who has always been interested in tools and technology and integrating its use into my practice. And as I grew in leadership, working with consultants, looking at the way businesses are run, the business models, all that stuff. Tapping into brilliant minds of the profession in both tech and architecture and beyond to glean whatever I could along my journey was difficult at best. There were short, cynical Twitter posts. I'm talking about you, Brian Ringley. And of course, there were courses and seminars, but only at a few conferences. In that microcosm of the industry, it wasn't hard to find like-purposed people who were passionate about solving a lot of the industry's problems. It also wasn't hard to see that we were all fighting similar battles because much of the profession remained ignorant of what was and is actually happening, and in many ways, pretending it will always be how it has always been. I continue to experience this phenomenon often, which shows that there is still plenty of work to be done. A lot of what is covered on this podcast is still considered by some, many, tangential to the practice of architecture and to the larger building industry. I don't say that to point fingers, but to add some color to the fact that there's still really a lot of work to do. And we here choose to be a part of those who are doing the work, recognizing that if we don't, someone else surely will, and we probably won't like what they come up with. We're not control freaks. No, that's far too negative. We are control enthusiasts. When starting out, I had a few guests in mind, but that list ran out rather quickly, and I was, for a short period, thinking I was done. But like any other design problem, if there's more time, there's more that can be done. And like any decent designer, I decided I was up for the challenge to get outside my comfort zone yet again and cast the net much wider. This has led to where we are today, wide-ranging and far-reaching long-form conversations about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. Over the past 100 episodes, I've had the privilege of talking with industry giants and sharing these conversations with you for the benefit of the profession, for all to hear. This is the purpose of the Troxel podcast, to give you and me hope, to inspire you and me, and to give you and me purpose, and to show that the future is left to those who are willing to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. My guests exemplify this ethos. And isn't it amazing to live in a world which is much different than that in which I cut my teeth in, where we can carry so much guidance around in our pockets? This is a good time to remind you that if you point your browser at trxl.co slash TED, there is a comprehensive audio library waiting for you because I don't think of these weekly episodes as things that fade away if you miss them right when they came out. They all fit into the larger story of what I'm doing here and pair well with other thoughts 
on similar and adjacent topics. This is the resource that I wish I'd had to guide my path from the beginning. Finding ways to surface the information has always been something I've been concerned about when doing an audio show because traditionally, there hasn't been a search feature for audio-based media. My Troxel episode database landing page is a tool that I made to hopefully get you closer to the content than most other podcasts offer. Again, that's trxl.co slash TED. So while this is all great, the business model is rather surprising. The supportive audience via subscriptions and downloads is healthy, but the number of companies willing to support and make the show possible is less than you might think. If you're a regular listener, you know who the companies are that care about what I'm doing here, and for them, I'm grateful. But if you know where I can gain additional support, please send those contacts my way. There is a team of people that make this show possible, and it takes money and resources to do so. My goal is to help as many people as possible overcome the two things our industry suffers through, the way things are and change. If we look at every other profession out there that is literally leaving us in the dust, we cannot argue that our future will be less technologically driven. I believe we can all agree on that. So this podcast exists to help close the gap between who we want to be and who we are as individuals, as firms, and as a profession. Where does this go from here? Well, I'm always considering ideas on how to make this resource an even more valuable tool for insight and action, and I'm excited to share ways in which that will happen as time goes on. But for now, I'm truly thankful for your attention. I know it's valuable, and my goal is to make it even more valuable so you too can help elevate the industry wherever you are in your career. Thank you for making these last 100 episodes possible. It has vastly exceeded my expectations on the kind of impact I thought this podcast could ever have. I also want to remind you that I rely exclusively on my listeners to share the podcast with others, so please do send it to one or two people who you think would benefit from what I'm doing here. Obviously, the content is free, so there shouldn't be any pushback there, and your help in this manner truly cannot be understated. The future of the show, in some ways, is entirely dependent on your willingness to do so. Also, if you have someone in mind who you'd like to hear on the show, go to trxl.co slash TED and click the Suggest a Guest button just below the list of people who have already been on the show. I love getting these recommendations, and many episodes that have been published have come from listener referrals. As always, thank you so much for listening and for your interest in helping make a positive impact in the industry as we examine the coevolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Paul Wintour. Paul is the founder of Parametric Monkey, a computational design consultancy focused on BIM and digital fabrication. Paul holds an MARC from the Architectural Association's Design Research Laboratory and has taught at the University of Technology, Sydney, the University of New South Wales, the Queensland University of Technology, the University of Hong Kong, and the Architectural Association. In this episode, which was inspired by Paul's recent blog posts, we discuss his description of the gap that exists in the profession between innovation and adoption, just how far behind we really are and how much work there is to do to catch up, technical debt in practice, the reality that most tools that are developed in firms are incomplete and unused, transactions versus relationships, recalibrating practice, and more. This was a fantastic conversation with Paul, and I hope you'll not only find value in it for yourself, but that you'll help add value to the profession by sharing it with your network. I also encourage you to share it with firm leadership. So without further ado, I bring you my wide-ranging conversation with Paul Wintour. 
Paul, welcome to the podcast. Great to meet you. I am excited about this. You've been writing, you've been on fire lately. I, I have the fire emoji uh, in my head right now because of the the, the blog posts that you've been writing. And uh, and I want to really focus on two today. The We started off with technical debt and then uh, incomplete and unused. Are these hit hit home for me as a digital practice leader at, at my previous firm that I was at, but also, I th- you know, this is the, a lot of, a lot of these things are just ignored in firms today. And, and this is, I think, kind of a wake up call for those. And so I, I would love it if you would, let's just start off and define what you see as kind of the thesis. Like there's definitely an underlying thesis to these articles. And if you want to just kind of kick it off and tell us where you're coming from and and who your audience is, because I know it's not necessarily the users, although I I know it is in some, but it's also leadership, right? So. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, I started Parametric Monkey around five years ago um, as a consultancy, the blog had been running much longer than that. And a lot of what I wanted to write about was getting better with how we deal with technology. So I think you know, a lot of people in the industry would agree with the statement that architecture and technology are converging, but how we actually manage and use technology hasn't evolved a lot. And what tended to happen was that a lot of the companies would, you know, they would promote the use of their tools and their workflows. You know, they didn't get into a lot of the nitty gritty. It was a lot of marketing. And I was just listening to Matt Wash's <laughs> podcast with you, you know, which kind of said that, you know, there's probably only one person in the company that was probably using that software or that workflow. So I was kind of really interested in having a, an honest discussion about technology. So, you know, things that weren't working, that, you know, projects that, that did go wrong. And so much of that just gets sort of covered up. So these sort of articles were, I mean, a lot of them come from my own personal experience and also through our consulting work, you know, we get to work with lots of practices, um, you know, not just in Australia, but international. And so there's recurring themes. Um, and so I, I think it's important that we, that we have this discussion so that we can actually get better with, you know, with using technology. One of the, I think one of the kind of, boiling points, or, or maybe this was just where you're having a lot of these conversations is with the document that you co-authored with the Australia Institute of Architects called BIM and Beyond Design Technology and Architecture. It sounds like you were doing a lot of kind of reconnaissance and talking with people as you're doing the survey and able to dig a little bit deeper than just kind of typical survey questions. Is that kind of how some of these topics came to to the surface or or is it even bigger than that. I mean, is that because you referenced it in both articles and it seems like those are that, that these are some things that were coming out of that report. The background of, of that sort of commission is they had already done the survey. Um, so we weren't involved in the actual framing of the questions. Um, but once they had collected all the responses, you know, kind of synthesizing those, res, you know, results and, and trying to work out what the underlying cause of a lot of that was. And it was pretty interesting. So it, it goes beyond just kind of tallying up how many people said yes or no, but understanding why. 
Um, so, you know, one of the things that we asked about was emerging technologies. So often practices, you know, only a handful of them will engage in emerging technologies. Um, and by that, I mean digital fabrication, robotic fabrication, AI, you know, robotics, you know, all of those sort of things. But there was kind of quite a big uptake in digital fabrication. And what's happening behind the scenes is that there was a lot of governments, state governments that are starting to introduce DFMA frameworks for government projects. So namely schools, you know, we start to see these trends and it's not necessarily driven by the architects wanting to get involved in it, but rather of a, um, a demand where they, if they want to be competitive and be a part of these commissions, they're, they're starting to have to learn these, these kind of new skills. So yeah, certainly through the Australian Institute of Architects survey, we got a broad picture of the industry. In some ways, it was a little bit skewed in that the people that were already using technology were probably the most likely to respond to the survey. So I, I, I dare say that, you know, a lot of people that weren't interested in BIM or any sort of technology didn't respond to the survey. So some of those numbers are a bit skewed. But also in parallel with that, we were doing a lot of consulting work with, with architecture um, offices around their digital strategy. So, you know, the software they were using, how many technical staff they would have, and, you know, you could start to kind of piece those pieces together where at one level you have an industry-wide response or trend um, and then seeing individual practices, you know, all of the details about why they're struggling to, you know, to make things work. It's interesting to think about the purpose of this report. I'm wondering if you even know what it is. Is it just to expose kind of the the pulse of the industry and where it's at with technology, or is it to coax people along in adoption? I mean, one of the things that that I, I've been thinking a lot about lately is kind of the innovators innovating on innovation curve, which it goes up and to the right. And because that's their mindset, that's what they, you that's the startup that might be a, a design technology group inside a firm, but they're kind of ever improving, leapfrogging, going up. And then there's this adoption curve, which is way lower, way flatter. And so the gap between those gets fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. And the question then is like, how will we ever overcome that? And so is, is that kind of the purpose behind doing a report like this is just to expose that kind of information to a larger audience and get firm leadership thinking about that and addressing it more critically, or is it something else? Yeah, I mean, I think it had two purposes. Um, I think the first one is around benchmarking the industry. So, you know, getting a pulse for where we're at and organizations, you know, really value that. They want to know how they rate compared to their competitors. Um, and I think the second um, thing the re report was trying to do was to really define a roadmap about how organisations can get better. And so part of that is to, you know, have the conversation not with the design technology 
people, but to move it up into kind of man- management and leadership so that we can start to have discussions about, you know, how to actually monetize these skills, about where the industry's headed, about how we're going to train future staff. Um, and so I think it, you know, it, it kind of succeeded on that level. It, it takes a long time to do a report of this size. Um, so, you know, it was probably a year in the making. So I guess by the time you finish that report, you probably need to start all over again because, you know, you're a year on. Update it. <laughs> um, yeah, but <laughs> I'm sure it won't be the last BIM survey um, in the industry. Yeah, I mean, this this it is critical information to understand. I think one of the things you point out in in one of your articles is, is that the term that showed up on Harvard Business Review, right? Which was innovation theater, right? And this idea of firms positioning themselves in marketing as techno- technological, uh, technologically advanced or, you know, cutting edge, maybe bleeding edge even, um, just because it looks a certain way to a particular client or to peers in the industry. And And what's interesting, you know, you think about, these firms and the survey comes out and, and who's going to answer the questions. And I think something else you point out in, in one of your, one of those articles was, I think it was in the incomplete and unused was that a BIM manager gets assigned to fill out this information. And a lot of times a BIM manager is going to come back with information that the leadership is completely unaware of all of the tools that they've developed, the things that they're using in air quotes, right? Because just because they have it doesn't necessarily mean they're using it. And even if they are using it, it might only be one or two people in the office, right? So um, there's a huge disconnect between leadership and marketing, I guess, and the actual users and the actual outcomes of the processes and the repetitive nature that those processes require to get better and more embedded in a firm. I'm just wondering kind of, as I spew all that out, I know you have thoughts on all that stuff, but there's a big gap there between, between all of those various pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole leadership in, in kind of architecture, you know, the way that I like to think of it is, you know, it it takes a generation to change. So, um, you know, the people in leadership now, um, e- even their design style, they're perfecting a style or a practice that they learnt, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and so, you know, by the time, you know, someone of my age, you know, gets to that kind of leadership practice, you know, we all want to be practising what we were taught. So, you know, there's actually like a, probably a 30 or 40-year gap between the technology and the thinking and and sort of the the execution and the management of that. And so the companies that are doing really well with technology are the ones where leaders play an active role um, with technology. Now, you know, the people that I speak of, you know, they probably learned CAD and they probably haven't touched it for 20 years. Um, they don't know anything about Revit and work sets and, and all that kind of stuff, but they have the, the conversation. And, you know, that makes a huge 
difference because um, they don't need to know everything, but they have the discussion and they know how to to use people and their skills to you know to improve how the business is being run. Uh, the ones that are struggling are the ones that kind of hire one person, a BIM manager, because the industry says you need to be a manager. Um, and then everything technical just gets delegated to them. But the reality is that that delegation is doesn't mean much because they don't have a lot of um, ownership or authority to make decisions. So, yes, they're responsible for the day-to-day solving of problems, but, you know, can they spend money? Can they buy software? You know, do they have an allowance? Can they restructure teams? Can they organise training as they see fit? Um, probably not. You know, that all has to get escalated to management. And so, you know, they don't have a lot of autonomy in, in how they're actually running technology within the company. So it's still very much, a, you know, um, a siloed discipline that's supporting architecture rather than an integrated, you know, design technology team. Yeah, I absolutely see that all over the place. I, and then there's there are examples of very successful teams and firms who do the things that you're talking about, right? There are the ones who have technologists in leadership positions who are sitting at the table strategically for the direction of the company and they're proactive about it versus this kind of reactive siloed. And and it is interesting to think about, and you brought this up in, in an article. I, I definitely keep giving you credit for this because you do tick a lot of the boxes in here when it comes to kind of explaining all of these different pieces, but talking about that, that just that mindset of, architecture is a digital practice nowadays versus it's architecture with digitally supporting technologists who might may be on the on the payroll or maybe they're a hired consultant right those are two very different ways to to run a company today when i consult with companies you know we we go through a series of questions and you know one of them is based on you know, Donald Rumsfeld's, you know, famous quote about known knowns, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. So, you know, there are things that we don't know. We know that they'll happen, but we don't know exactly what they are. So, you know, take, for example, you know, someone's going to retire. We know that that will happen, but we don't know necessarily who or when or we know someone will go on maternity leave, but, you know, we can't predict that. Um, and as we kind of go through this, we start to look at, okay, well, where is the profession headed? And one of the, I guess, known unknowns is that, okay, architecture and technology will start to, will continue to converge. And we say, okay, well, what does that mean? And it's like, okay, well, we know that we'll be using technology. Maybe it's Brevet and BIM, or maybe it's something else we don't know, but we know that it's going to play a bigger and bigger part in what we're doing. Um, and then you get, you know, further down the questionnaire and, and we start talking about, okay, well, how is digital, how are you enabling digital within your teams? And then the, and then the answer is often, well, we have a department that does that, or we have this person that 
is responsible for digital. And so there's this disconnect between, on the one hand, they know the profession is becoming more digital and we have to become more savvy with how we use technology. But on the other hand, the way that they're structuring teams, that they're hiring, how they're delegating tasks is that we have the architects or the designers and then we have the technical support crew. And so it's it's really trying to sort of highlight to them and say, look, these are your words that you said the industry was happening, but this is what you're actually doing. So how can we reconcile those two perspectives And, you know, that may come in a variety of ways, right? So that might be training, it might be hiring, it might be remuneration. It may just be having, you know, different types of discussions on Monday mornings. But they don't, organizations don't necessarily understand that discrepancy unless you can, you know, you can point it out, you know, using their own kind of, you know, words and responses. And there's so many firms who have pushed off this idea of in-house training. You know, you've got to do it on your own time. I mean, it's not even said, right? It's just expected. You're going to do it on your own time. You're going to do it on nights and weekends. You're going to, you know, step up to the the challenge. And I, I don't care how you do it. You're just going to do it versus this idea of actually doing that work of creating that in-house training team or hiring somebody to come in and do the training consistently um it's interesting to think about it from that point of view because if the gap is really getting bigger if people are saying one thing but doing another what are you seeing from firms that are actually handling this well i mean how are they bridging the gap i mean one of the things you talk about in the article is actually training the middle managers to you mentioned it earlier in the conversation right training people on not only what what's possible. Like you, you don't want them to learn how to use the software. Your goal is not to get them to be proficient, but the goal is to get them to be aware of what's going on, both on the good, but also the thing, the struggles inside the software that people are dealing with. Because if they don't understand that, I mean, something that my mind keeps going back to as you're talking is this misalignment of incentives. Like typically there's leadership and manage that are in, incentivized by one thing, which is you know, more clients, bigger projects on time, on budget, you know, put the hours wherever they can to make it look the best and et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the people who actually have to do the work and they don't want to stay nights and weekends. So they're going to take shortcuts. Right. And so that's where this idea of technical debt comes into play, which is there's a disconnect of what the problems really are with the software. There's a lot of them. I mean, and and I think it it's also an issue where the younger staff is not speaking up because they don't want people to know that it it's not working correctly or you know there's there's definitely kind of a a communication problem there both directions yeah i mean i think there are lots of issues happening at multiple levels of the organization that are contributing to the issue so you know when i think from my own practices you know working as an architect you know the way that i learned autocad was sitting next to someone who was, you know, the CAD manager, asking him lots of questions and and bugging them. Um, And he once told me, I said to him, you know, I'm sure you're um, really annoyed me asking you loads and loads of questions. And he goes, well, sort of, but I will always answer you because if you don't, 
if I don't, I know that you're going to go off and do, you know, a dirty hack that will um, come back to bite us. And so he, you know, he took the the effort to solve issues then and then because he knew, you know, they would become even more problematic down down the track. Um, and then so, you know, you fast forward a few years and, you know, working within a team, you know, you can look over your shoulder and you can see someone doing something, you know, very tedious in, in a slow and painful way. And, you know, I remember showing one interior designer how to use BIMLink, you know, to help with her scheduling um, of furniture and things like that. And her mind was blown. <laughs> and it's like, you know, what, you know, what was taking, you know, days and this was a project that was under serious pressure and was behind schedule and was one of those, you know, toxic projects. It just took someone who knew the software to sit beside them and go, okay, well, here's an obvious savings. But that only happened because I was embedded in the team. Um, and a lot of organizations, you know, they have a design technology department. They may be physically separated, um, you know, sit in the corner in their own area. You know, I know I remember visiting WeWork several years ago and there was a big sign up going, welcome to IT, please turn around and submit a, a ticket request. Um, and so there was this attitude, you know, even in other organisations where if you want to ask a question, submit a ticket, we'll put it in a queue and then, you know, in three or four days later, we'll, we'll get back to you. And, you know, that makes sense from a, a software development side of things. And IT people will continue to push that as a, as a way of uh, operating. But when you're dealing with architects that, you know, have to get drawings out that day, they're not going to wait around three or four days for an answer. So if you don't answer them, they're going to do a hack. Um, so I think, you know, anything that you can do where you can identify problems as quick as possible. So, you know, again, Matt Wash mentioned um, in his podcast about the, you know, Toyota production system around, you know, stopping that production line as soon as you discover something. So, you know, in the past we've done, we've done, you know, quite a few initiatives, you know, one that worked really well was, you know, based on the idea of uh, um, a genius bar. So you go into an Apple store, you know, you make your 15-minute appointment um, and they'll answer any questions you want and show you how to do it. And the issue that we were having at, at the organisation at the time was, you know, there had been a lot of new people and they arrive and they don't necessarily know who to ask well, what to ask, but also more importantly, who to ask. So firstly, they have to they have to have a problem that they're trying to solve. And then the second issue is they need to find in an organization of 200 when they've only just been there a month, who the best person to ask is. So how do you know who the best person is for door schedules? Or how do you know who the best person is to speak about, you know, how to create a family or, or something like that? And so we set up, you know, for one hour, um, people could make a request and say, I have a question about X, Y, and Z. And then we would match them 
with the expert in the office so that for 15 minutes they could sit down and they could they could learn a particular topic so that was an example of being proactive in in kind of solving those issues it wasn't about a revit dashboard or you know telling them what they had done wrong but going if you have a problem we will connect you to the right people so that you can improve and get better with you know what you whatever it is you need to be doing um and that ranged from you know photoshop illustrator through to you know python and c sharp and and everything in between like we had a lot of experts um and all they had to offer was you know probably 15 minutes 30 minutes a week of their of their sort of time yeah th- those are two completely different approaches right i i think about it in terms of transactions versus relationships and I worked for Apple for a little bit and your uh, the the story of the genius bar is brings me back to something that they drilled into us early on which was the difference between and this was early on in the Apple store days but it was so I mean it was probably what 2008 something like that and right after the iPod came out things like that and um the difference between an Apple store and a Best Buy, and I don't know if you if you have Best Buy in Australia or not, but Best Buy is just like a consumer electronics store. Okay. And, and so the idea was at, at Best Buy, if you go in and buy a Mac, right? And this is the whole reason Apple started the Apple store was to create the experience that they wanted to control for people who were buying a computer. And you go into a Best Buy, you pick one up off the shelf, you walk up to the register, you pay for it. And they said, that's a transaction. The relationship is over. Done, right? The Apple Store attitude was you buy a computer and we begin a relationship. Why? Because we want you to get the most out of your computer. Because why? We want you to come back and buy another one at some point. But between now and then, however long that is, we want you to get the most you can out of it. How is that going to happen? We're going to teach you, right? So they had the genius bar, to your point. They had all these other different things that they offered a customer. And and I, I thought it was fundamental, the approach, right, which was the difference between a transaction and creating a relationship. I mean, and it's funny, right? It's a, it's a relationship with a store. It's a relationship with maybe a staff member or two or three at a store, but still that that could happen, that they could change a customer's attitude. And obviously it's been wildly successful. And that's probably a big piece of why it's been successful. But to do that in a firm is equally, you know, the analogy holds up, right? To, to connect the right person with the right person and be able to, in 15 minutes, learn how to do something that it would have taken you four hours to find on Google and YouTube and go through all the various, and and you end up shopping for shoes, right? Every time. So (laughs) it's something that happens because there's so many distractions out there. Um, those are two completely different attitudes. And for a firm to recognize that those connections matter inside the company to facilitate and, and that somebody can actually facilitate those submitting a ticket to it is a transaction finding the right person a project architect a bim manager it doesn't matter who to create a relationship there actually builds a culture in your company that can overcome these kinds of problems let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors My friends, I've got a new chapter in the Avail story to tell you about, and that is the newly released version of Avail Desktop 4.3. 
The people behind Avail continually strive to make things easier for you. Easier to find the information you're looking for, easier to get it into your preferred application, and easier to store it in your preferred cloud storage locations. Let's face it, I think we can all agree that easier is better. But they didn't stop there. They also care about what your experience is like. So, as always, they've kept their focus on visuals with an eye toward design and ease of use. You're probably dying to hear the details of what's new. Well, who am I to get in the way? So let's get right to it. Avail Desktop 4.3 will now feel like your own custom app thanks to key cards. Key cards are data-driven and create zippy new visual ways of organizing your existing content. Think of them like pivot tables for your content. Join the Avail Desktop 4.3 party in BYOS or bring your own storage. Now you can store and deliver your content using Autodesk's BIM 360, Microsoft's OneDrive, Microsoft SharePoint, Google Drive, Dropbox, Ignite, and others. Avail's new Dynamic Paths feature also solves the problem of accessing content using desktop connectors like Autodesk Desktop Connector. Try it today. Either bug your admin to update your installation for all the new goodies, or if you aren't currently using Avail, go to getavail.com today to learn more. That's getavail.com. And now let's get back to our conversation. There's another, you know, another example you were asking about, you know, organizations that are doing it well and, and organizations where there's room for improvement. Um, you know, we do a lot of software workshops. Um, so, you know, whether that's kind of Rhino, Revit or, or Grasshopper or Dynamo. And, you know, with some organizations, it's, it's like the moon landing. So, um, it has to be timed at the, you know, when there's no deadlines, when they're not too busy, where, you know, people are not away on holidays, you know, it gets scheduled in months in advance and, you know, they're very, the participants are curated on, you know, who deserves it and, you know, who doesn't. And, you know, then there's another organization where, you know, people do gorilla you know, workshops. So if someone goes, you know, I know Python, I'm going to run, you know, lunchtime, lunch and learn sessions. Um, and the organization got 60 people wanting to learn Python on the first day. And, you know, no one, no one organized that top down. It was all kind of bottom up, you know, the organization's supports it through, okay, well, you know, whether it's a free lunch or taking an hour out of your work day, you know, whether that's beers after work, you know, whatever that involves, they're like, if you, if you take the initiative to make it happen, um, we will kind of support that. And so if you can get, you know, a handful of people all sharing their own expertise, whether that's Python, whether that's Revit, whether it's Photoshop, you know, very soon you start to change the culture about learning and how we discuss technology. And you start to also learn about, you know, who these key individuals are that you can ask for help to, to help you on your kind of journey. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that is huge to, to enable that to happen, to give people the agency in a company to be that resource, right? Because I think a lot of people are waiting around for permission to do that, but you, you called it guerrilla kind of tactics, right? It's a, 
there seems to be a bit of agency there. So that, that would have to be kind of modeled. It seems like for, for people to feel like they just have permission to do that without, without explicit permission. It's interesting. I wanted you to define technical debt and why this is such, you call it architecture's ticking time bomb. So I I would love to get into that topic with you. Yeah. So, I mean, technical debt, you know, comes from the software industry. You know, it's not, it doesn't only relate to software or architecture. I'm sure that every industry or profession um, is facing similar issues. Um, But it's the fact that, you know, taking shortcuts today means more work tomorrow or down the track. So it's a very simple sort of concept. Um, And I think we all know intuitively that it, that it makes sense that if we do something quick and dirty, then when we come to update it and there is always changes in our industry, is that it's going to be twice as much work. Um, And so you get almost like negative compound interest where you just keep digging yourself deeper and deeper into this technical debt hole. And, you know, I think what helped me articulate the problem I think you know a lot of a lot of people. Uh, it will resonate with them through the through their their own experiences. But just working with practices, organisations, and digging down into some of those projects that have gone horribly wrong, and you know there, there's kind of comments that come back and go, I you know I don't know why the project went so bad because it's actually relatively simple, you know, from a architectural you know, technology point of view, but you can just see this, this kind of chain reaction of, you know, things that have gone wrong. Right. And it probably starts right at the beginning in the, in the feasibility or the competition phase where, you know, people don't, they just want to get it done. They don't necessarily care how, um, it was, it was modeled. So they do quick and dirty, you know, sort of hacks, you know, the project might go on hold you know, that competition team moves on to another team or another another project. Um, then the documentation team comes in to for the real project. And, you know, after being on hold for so long, there's probably a we need it tomorrow mentality. So maybe they don't, you know, rebuild things or start from scratch. So you're already kind of behind the eight ball. You know, the BIM manager, there's only one in the organization and they are not a part of the project kickoff, so they can't go, or oh, hang on, we should redo this or restructure it this way. And by the time that happens, that project has progressed so far that it's one of the, one of the BIM managers said to me, if I had have tried to fix it, I would have done more harm than good. So it, it got to a point where things were so broken then they just had to sort of accept it. And so, you know, then there's people start getting frustrated and they're like, you know, why am I working all this overtime on this project that's just, you know, crap? And so they ask to be taken off the project and so no one else wants to go on it, so then they hire new people. And so, you know, new people come in and go, I'm going to change the world or, you know, fresh start and, and make, make my mark. 
and then, you know, the cycle kind of repeats. And if you do that enough times, it gets to a point where there's no one left on the project that can remember how that project was done a certain way. So all of that knowledge about why things are the way that they are and the the history of decision-making is gone. Either they've left the organization or they're on another project. And so then you're into this tipping point where you you can't go back. You've got a whole host of, of compounding errors and you're chasing your tail because you don't know what should be, what's right and what's wrong because the people that you should be able to turn to and ask for guidance um, are no longer there. You know, you're surrounded by people that have been on the project for one or two months only. And so the only thing left to do is really just to, you know, it's like that marathon runner just (laughs) kind of crawling over the finish line. You know, they just want to get it done and, and, and that's it, you know, the next project will be different. But as we know, history tends to repeat. Yeah. I'm looking for a, a tweet that I responded to or, or forwarded um, from somebody I follow on Twitter. And and the, it was interesting because uh, she's an author and she wrote uh, her and her husband, who's her husband has been on this show early on. And he they wrote a book on quarantine and pandemic Um, And it was interesting. They were writing this book before um, any of that actually happened. So it was kind of interesting timing because it it totally applies to this. The idea that this negative compounding interest is because we refuse to improve our processes, seeing those as a business advantage, right? I mean, there's just this constant reactionary cycle. You talk about the staff who's responsible for putting out the work on the deadline. And so their incentive is to not work overtime, right? And so of course they're going to take shortcuts. Are they going to tell everybody about the shortcuts they're taking? Of course they're not going to tell everybody about the shortcuts. And and then when somebody has to come back and fix it, they have to reverse engineer the shortcuts, which takes magnitudes of time longer than actually doing it right the first time. So here 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 we go. If I can find my damn tweet sorry this is a painful here for me to find it because twitter doesn't make it easy oh terrible terrible that i can't find this okay here we go it's it's a tweet by nicola twilly nicola twilly it says quarantine is a tool that we know we will need again its flaws, challenges, potential for injustice, etc., are revealed every time we use it. They're flexible. They are fixable, but we don't, haven't, and won't because no one wants to think about pandemics after a pandemic. So my analogy here is replace quarantine with the BIM process and replace pandemic with project, right? So the BIM process is a tool we know we will need again. Its flaws, challenges, potential for injustice are revealed every time we use them. But they're fixable, but we don't, we haven't, and we won't because no one wants to think about projects after a project, right? We're automatically thinking about the next project as soon as a project is over and the process doesn't get any better because we don't find it fundamental to our business. And it's so interesting to think about technology and support as a silo within a company when it is the only way we deliver projects today and it is the way we do business. And to think of those two things as separate 
is absolute failure on leadership's part in a company. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really interested in the business of architecture. You know, I, I got to the point in my career where it's like, you know, I know how to do architecture. I know how to do technology. The challenge now is not a, a technical or a design-related issue, but it's getting um, broader support from everyone so that we can actually make it happen. So it's really shifting from, say, an individual focus to more of a, a, a sort of a collective focus. And if we think about how people are remunerated, you know, in their annual reviews or bonuses, most of the time, you know, it's the people that work long hours that, you know, get projects done that are kind of rewarded. And that tends to further ingrain this notion that projects have to take a long time, that you have to work a lot of overtime in order to become successful. Um, But if you think about, well, who should actually be rewarded, the person that finishes at five o'clock and is super efficient, or the person that does the same amount of work that finishes at 10 p.m., you know, on the face of it, one looks like, um, you know, they're leaving on time or early um, and is not a team player, but the person that stays late has dinner and, you know, is not 100% focused on the project, you know, is seen more favourably. Um, and so, you know, there were a few moments in my career where I sort of said, this is this is wrong, right, just because someone is more efficient um, doesn't mean that they're not a team player and they shouldn't be, shouldn't be kind of held back. So I think, and, you know, when we start to look at how architecture is becoming more digitized, we can see that same sort of bias in, in software. So, you know, com- companies will be happy to spend, I say happy, but, you know, they're willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars on consulting fees because they know, you know, that requires a lot of bums on the seat and there's a lot of, you know, hours that are going to be needed to do it. But if you presented uh, a second option and said, okay, well, this software can do the exact same thing um, and it's, you know, and it's going to do it in five minutes instead of five months, is that worth more, less, or the same as the consulting? And so most people, you know, they would, they would have a reluctance. They wouldn't spend a couple of million dollars on software. You know, that's absurd. I can get, you know, you know, Google for $10 a month or something like that or Netflix for $10 a month. Why would I spend, you know, a million dollars on software? But, you know, it, if if you compare like for like, it's like, well, actually it's, it should be worth more because you, you're doing it in five minutes instead of five months. So, you know, not only are you saving, well, maybe you're not saving any money, but you're saving, you know, five months worth of labor. So, but people don't have that, that kind of perspective. So I think there's a, a recalibration that's needed about, you know, what does efficiency look like? And I'm not sure how we get to that. Um, I think, you know, the way I guess my part in this puzzle is really just to, 
you know, put out articles that hopefully, um, you know, stimulate some discussion um, and, you know, hopefully find its ways into, you know, the right type of people reading it that we can, you know, have meaningful discussions in in rethinking how we actually run projects because, um, yeah, they certainly aren't the most efficient at the moment. I started my career in architecture as a designer. I, I worked my way up to a senior design position. And then there's this giant gaping hole in the organization that technology was a silo. It was reactive. There was no strategic anything going on and uh let you know internally or externally um marketing loved innovation theater it was very much like we're doing simulation we're doing all of these things when to your point there was one user in the in the firm who left who was doing simulation right um and so i moved over to digital practice created this group and I feel like the success that we saw in digital practice came from my background as a designer and seeing this as a design problem within the organization. And I don't think very many firms or practices or leaders or think of it that way. I don't think that we think of ourselves, our organization as a design problem. And it's a continually evolving design problem. It's never done. Right. The organization is never done being designed. And I'm just curious, you know, as, as we wrap up here, like, what are your thoughts about that kind of approach or just that kind of a mindset and what you see out there? Because I think very much is in alignment with the things that you're talking about. You're bringing these things up. You're trying to get these ideas out there. You're writing these articles to stimulate these conversations, but really like to put our money where our mouths are or to put rubber on the road, right? Like for all the cliches that we can come up with that you've got to actually act. You have to do equally or more than what you say you're doing. Like instead of saying it up front, just to say it innovation theater style, just do it and then talk about the outcomes later. Right. And whether they're good or bad, because we do need to learn from our mistakes. But I feel like so much of this, if we reframe our own organizations as design problems, that's at least a starting point because we're architects. Like we, we're damn good problem solvers. We can solve these problems. I know we're focused on our clients. We're focused outwardly much more than we're focused inwardly. But at least it's a beginning to start to reframe how we approach these kinds of issues. Because as you mentioned earlier, like there are so many intertwined issues, it's actually difficult to find the right place to start, but we have to start. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a good quote, which says, um, you know, it's out of Harvard business review again around, you know, strategies and what you say you do, it's what you actually do. So yes, you can put in whatever mission statements, you know, you, you want, but ultimately what you do is your strategy. So if you want to invest in a certain type of project or typology or whatever that is, where you spend your time and energy is your strategy. So I think certainly com- organizations need to get better at doing what they say they do. I think what's helped me a lot and, and, you know, maybe give me a bit of um, street cred is, you know, I am an architect by training and 
I come from it from a perspective of helping helping the project. So I think sometimes um, if you're more from a technician background, there can be a bit of adversary between kind of the leadership about, well, I don't want to be told what to do by a technician. Like, you know, this should be design-led and, you know, we're interested about the project and, and that sort of things. And so, you know, having worked with kind of, I guess, well-known architects is that you're approaching it from a, yes, it's a technical solution, but the goal is to actually improve the project. And I think if you can start to reframe conversations that way, you're going to get much more buy-in. So one of the, I guess, eye-opening moments for me was that through my our consulting work, we work with architects, engineers, you know, manufacturers and, and contractors, is that they all have a different, um, let's say, bias in that, you know, that triangle of, you know, good, fast, cheap, okay? So, you know, for a contractor, and by contractor I mean, you know, general contractor, subcontractor, manufacturer, saving time is of huge importance, you know, because of all the preliminaries and, you know, the overheads. Um, But when you talk to an architect, you know, saving time is not high on their agenda. Um, It's around improving, improving the, you know, the design outcome. So I'm actually working on another article, which I'm not sure when it will be released, (laughs) but I've been reflecting about kind of, why I got into BIM. So um, the article is called BIM 2.0 and it's about next generation BIM. And, you know, the way that I see it is, you know, we wouldn't use, you know, Windows NT anymore or, um, you know, we wouldn't use technology or, you know, a Nokia phone or, or a BlackBerry that's, you know, 20, 30 years old. Um, so, you know, why are we using BIM technology that's 37 years old, right? Um, at a minimum. So, you know, Revit's been around, you know, a long time, you know, 22, 23 years. So what we have now is probably not where BIM is going to, to get to. So what does that next era look like? Um, and that got me thinking about, well, you know, why did I get into BIM in the first place? And I can remember the first project I took to contract documentation. You know, I was a third year architecture student. It was my first project using CAD. Everything else was hand-drawn. So it's quite funny because I worked for a company where they were a late adopter of CAD. And then I kind of you know, leapfrogged and went all the way from BIM to <laughs> computational design in, you know, in a matter of years. So I was learning CAD, but I was also learning how to actually document a building. And all of the door and window schedules were done manually, um, you know, probably through Excel or measuring off drawings. And I actually mixed up some of the widths and heights on some of the windows. Um, and it's just for a house, but, you know, they're timber-framed, windows so you know quite expensive and you know handmade and things like that and I'm not dyslexic I was just 
you know, a third year student and there was, you know, failures of um, quality assurance at all levels from myself to my boss to the actual, you know, contractor. And somehow a few of these got built as they were scheduled rather than as they were drawn. Now you could argue about, okay, what's the order of precedence and how that all works. But, you know, what I ended up having to do is I had to tell my boss <laughs> and he's like, okay, well, you got to go out there at 5am onto site tomorrow and explain it to a very grumpy builder. And then we have to work out what we're going to do. Um, and so I had to redesign the windows so that we could, um, you know, use this one over here and that one over here. And we had to change the design so that we didn't have to remake th- these windows. Um, and it was a pain in the ass, right? Like it, you know, it was stressful. Um, my boss was annoyed. The builder was annoyed. The client was annoyed. And, you know, something like Revit mostly eliminates that problem. Okay. We can, we can have scheduling. And so then you fast forward, you know, 15 years, um, and you're sitting next to a, a interior designer who's doing all of their furniture schedules in Excel because it's quicker and easier. And so, you know, I tell them that story and you go, look, I will take the time to, to teach you how to use, you know, the scheduling in Revit because I know that, you know, a simple mistake can, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of errors. So I think when you bring in that kind of real world experience about this is why we have standards because stuff has gone wrong and it will go wrong again in the future. You know, they start to just see it as not, not a BIM manager, you know, stamping their, their feet going, you must do it this way, but there's a reason why we're doing it the way that we're doing it. Yeah. There's a, something that, that, that reminds me of when, when I was doing all this was there's a lot of pushback from staff where you're talking about standards and they see it as handcuffs. Oh, you know, because I ultimately want design freedom at all levels at every step along the way. And I want to be able to, you know, do whatever. And, and the message really had to turn into, no, it's, it's not handcuffs, it's freedom. These standards are freedom to give you back the time to do the things that actually matter. Right. And that mindset shift is huge in a firm. Um, and it's very difficult to get across uh, messaging wise, communication wise to really understand the value of why these, we do it this way. And a firm on many levels has to have those kinds of efficiencies built in or, I mean, it's not just because of the problems, but because of the timelines and because of everything that we, the things that our business is built on. It's very, uh, it, it is a, a difficult problem to deal with when, when I, I think every firm at some level is dealing with kind of the wild west nature of standards and adherence or non-adherence to those standards. It's, it's interesting to think about. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough problem to crack for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I heard an, of another project where you know on their site plan, you know, they had dimensioned to an existing um, retaining wall on site, so they didn't use 
you know, absolute coordinates, but it was a relative coordinate or relative dimension from something existing. And what happened was, you know, during that time the survey was done and they were going through their design process, uh, that wall had been demolished and it had been rebuilt and had been rebuilt in a different location. And, you know, the builder got on and they set out their project and, you know, the entire building was built in the wrong location. And it was just from, a, you know, a simple mistake. But, you know, these sort of um, stories, companies are often very reluctant to talk about because, you know, they don't want to admit mistakes. They don't want to be held liable. But it's through these stories that we actually learn and go, oh, okay, well, maybe that's why we lock down certain models or we have a Q&A process or QA process. So I think. You know, in general, we just need to be much more honest and open about not only that innovation theatre, but also the things that, that don't work and that have gone horribly wrong because it's, it's the failures that we learn from, not necessarily our successes. I can't wait to read about BIM 2.0 from your perspective. <laughs> this is going to be fantastic. I appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation today. There's so many more things I think that we could talk about. So maybe we'll do a, a 2.0 episode of our own at some point, but um, is there, obviously I'll have links to, to your social feeds, your website, where, where can people follow along with what you're, what you're writing, what you're publishing online, where they can see what, what you're up to. Yeah. So all of the articles are on um, parametricmonkey.com. Um, also, you know, through kind of LinkedIn. Um, so we're also creating new software, um, which deals with hopefully a lot of these issues, um, called metricmonkey.io. So keep an eye out for that. Um, and hopefully, you know, that will be a step in the right direction towards BIM 2.0. Fantastic. Paul, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. I really, really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me, Evan. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.